Where did all of you guys come from? I mean, we started off with no one, and now we've got uh, all of you here. It's good to see you. I heard it's getting pretty snowy out there. Is that right? All right. We're probably going to have a few people still creeping in during the message, so just make them feel welcome as we, as we go along here. All right, so um, who's ready to listen to God's word and be changed by it this morning? Yeah? All right. That's what it asks from us this morning. Um, this is a great passage. It's going to take us a little bit of work to get into it. We're going to have to maybe like push ourselves 15 minutes worth up a hill to kind of spread the table with all the pieces that we need, and then we'll have a nice 30-minute run down the hill. It's kind of like tobogganing, so... Um, or sledding, or whatever you call it here in America. <laughs> All right, still fighting that vocabulary battle after three years. I guess I'm never going never gonna to quite win it. So um, we're pretty much um, homing in on the end of our Acts series now. Uh, after this one, just one more message to go. And um, just to kind of reorientate you to the book, hopefully all this is... Um, really old hat to you now, but we started off with the Ascension and Pentecost. And then you remember we have that theme verse for Acts, Acts 1.8, which kind of uh, sets out the direction that we're heading in. Jesus says he's going to send the disciples to Jerusalem and then to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And that's pretty much what we see happen throughout the book. Uh, The church growing in Jerusalem and then getting kicked out, um, uh, persecuted, and driven out of Jerusalem, and they go to Judea and Samaria, and the, the church grows. And then we see that expansive uh, uh, explosion out to the nations. Peter goes to the Roman centurion, Cornelius. Paul is converted on the road to Damascus. Um, and then through the middle of the book, we get that uh, kind of great, uh, I guess, series of missionary uh, uh, documentaries, the missionary journeys. Paul's three uh, big trips that he took around the Mediterranean. Um, and we've looked to those and seen him teaching and preaching. We've got a feel for his heart for the gospel. We've seen Paul's understanding of mission work growing and how he develops that increasing focus on training uh, to the point where it comes really to its fruition in Ephesus. And we see him training and teaching and sending people out into the whole province of Asia. And that brings us now really to the final part of the book of Acts, which looks at the later years of Paul's life. And that final part of Acts breaks down into three big chunks. And the first one of those chunks we did with Westy last time. Um, after the missionary journeys are complete, Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And he basically has uh, what is actually only probably kind of a couple of weeks in Jerusalem. But it uses up uh, quite a bit of space in Acts because it's, it's action-packed. Uh, he goes into the city and uh, he finds himself in a very dangerous situation straight away. Um, he's... Uh, accused by the Jewish leaders of bringing a Gentile with him into the temple, which he didn't actually do. Uh, And he's almost lynched. Um, The the Roman army unit who are in charge of the city of Jerusalem have to kind of ride into the rescue. Three times they drag him out of trouble. Um, And by the time we get to the the kind of the beginning of chapter 23, which is where we left it off last time, Paul finds himself in a very dangerous situation. The Jewish leaders basically run out of patience uh, and they decide to take the law into their own hands. So they call him to the Sanhedrin to face a trial. And their plan is a group of 40 guys bind themselves with an oath to assassinate Paul on the way. So they have no intention that he's ever going to actually arrive. So things look as if they're getting pretty bad. And uh, what happens is that Paul's nephew in God's providence hears about this plot. And he goes to the Romans and warns them and says, look, these Jews are going to actually try and knock over your captive here. Um, And so for the fourth time, the Romans come to the rescue. Uh, so they, they put together a detachment of 470 soldiers. That's how serious they thought this plot against Paul was. 200 foot soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 cavalrymen uh, to rescue Paul, to take him in the dead of night up to the city of Caesarea. Um, and let's just have a look on that on the map, because Caesarea is going to be kind of center of operations for us today. So I think it's coming. Whee! Look at that. With movements and everything. Thanks, Ronnie. So, um, although this has been the map that we've been using for the whole of our series in Acts, you can see that Paul is kind of really circumscribed now just down here. That's Jerusalem and Caesarea. We zoom in on that a little bit, and you can see Jerusalem, that little part of the coast. So this is Jerusalem right here up in the hills, and then Caesarea is way up here. 
Um, that's a journey on foot of about 70 miles. I guess it's not dissimilar in terms of the land distance from going from, say, Grand Rapids to Ludington or something like that. The geography is a little bit different just because you're going down from such a high elevation, but down to the coast. So that's what we're looking at here. Um, and that uh, brings us into this second section of this last part of Acts. He's been in Jerusalem facing danger there. Now he's in Caesarea. And what we're going to find is that Paul ends up spending two years in Caesarea. Uh, and during that time, he's put on trial three times. And we're going to cover that in this morning's message. Um, he faces trial in front of three different people. Two of them are Roman governors. The first one's a guy called Felix. Uh, the second one is a guy called Festus, who is Felix's successor. Uh, and then finally, he's put on trial in front of Herod Agrippa II, who's the, uh, the Rome-sponsored puppet king of Judea. But Paul's story doesn't end there. Uh, there's a third and final section. After Caesarea, he's transferred to Rome. Uh, and that's going to be our last sermon. He goes there to have his case heard in front of Emperor Nero himself. So next time, we'll get to grips with that and see what God has to teach us through it. Anyway, those are the, the, uh, the three major pieces of this final section of Acts. We've got Paul facing danger in Jerusalem. I've already covered that. We've got Paul facing trials in Caesarea. That's what we're on to today. And then finally, we've got Paul uh, facing the emperor in Rome. So it's all that kind of makes sense. Everyone feeling oriented to the book. Cool. So what that means is that we've got a pretty large uh, section of text to deal with today. If you're taking notes, you might want to um, just scribble down the exact references that we're going between here so that you could read it in the week, because we're not going to be able to touch all of this in detail. It's chapter 23, verse 23, through to chapter 26, verse 32. And there's tons of great stuff in here, and I feel bad that we're not going to be able to go at it all in detail. Um, what you'll find, though, if you read it through, you'll see that it covers, uh, because Paul's on trial, he gives his testimony. And so he covers quite a lot of the ground that we've already seen in Acts. He goes through the conversion on the Damascus Road. Well, we saw that happen for real. Um, he goes through um, uh, talking, defending uh, the way that he presents the gospel before the Jews uh, to these uh, people who are trying him. Well, we've seen him do that for real as well on the missionary journey. So we're not missing that much, but I'm sure there are some nuances in there that you would love to see. So uh, do go back to it and read it. But the section we're actually going to read together now uh, that we're going to um, stand together and read in a minute is just looking in at this first trial with the uh, Roman governor Felix um, and uh, the, just to kind of get you orientated a little bit to that before we read it. Roman governor is the same role that Pontius Pilate had uh, in the trial of Jesus. So that gives you an idea of who this guy is and what kind of authority he has. But all of that was 25 years ago. Our story takes place in AD 57. And Felix is now the Roman governor of Judea. Pontius Pilate is long gone. Felix has been in Judea for five years. So he's got quite a lot of experience of Jewish politics. Um, and Paul, as you know, has been brought up to him by this detachment of Roman soldiers who've snatched him out from under the noses of the Jews. Um, and so what happens when he arrives, Felix decides, okay, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to just pause and wait for your accusers to arrive. I don't just want to try you on the spot. I'm going to wait for these Jews who've got such a problem with you to jump on their horses and do that 70-mile ride. Uh, and when they get here, then we'll put you on the stand and we'll see what you've got to say. So that's the point at which we join the story. So stand with me now, just in anticipation of what God's got to, to teach us with here, because it's a pretty cool passage. So chapter 24, verse 1, and we'll read it through to verse 21. Acts chapter 24, verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we're bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, 
I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense, he said. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers didn't find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they can't prove to you the charges that they're now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that's in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God that these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Well, these men who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Okay, so that's our text. So take a seat. That's what we've got to work with. And I'll pray before we begin. God in heaven, we just started uh, just kind of challenging ourselves whether we are up for transformation here. Um, But you have told us in your word there's no point reading it unless we are willing to have our hearts put on the operating table, um, unless we're willing to be changed. And God, I think this text shows us that we need change. And I pray very much that you would please work that change in us. Would you be present, God? Lord, we can't see this stuff. But we know the most important things that will ever happen in our lives are when your spirit goes to work in us, shaping, changing, convicting, giving us the guts to just do things differently, to go your way, to trust you with all our hearts. And we pray that you would work that in us, work powerfully among us, so that we might leave here people who are transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, um... Let's just do a little bit of background work here. Um, We're going to, as I said, put some things on the table which are hopefully going to be helpful for us as we go further into this. Some of you, I guess, are going to be wondering, hey, look, why are we in Caesarea? You know, isn't Jerusalem the capital of Judea? Isn't that the place where all the action should be? And in Jesus' time, you know, that's kind of what we see, isn't it? You know, all the roads seem to point to Jerusalem. That's the place where the crucifixion happens, etc. And in Old Testament Israel, it was the national capital. But what we've got here is uh, a slightly different uh, time in history. You see, ever since the Jews were um, taken into captivity by, by the Babylonians, about 600 years before all this happened, um, the, uh, the nation of Israel had been ruled and governed by a series of bigger kind of macro empires. First it was the Babylonians, then it was the Persians, then it was the Greeks, and now in our story it's the Romans. And the Romans have got a a particular way of keeping their finger in local politics. Uh, The way that they do it here in Judea, just the same way as they do it in uh, all of the other territories that they govern, as you find as you look in the history books, is that they um, were in the habit of picking a local influential uh, kind of uh, uh, someone who had some standing in the region. And then the Romans would come in with some money and set that person up as a king. So that created the appearance that these places were being governed locally, uh, which was really nice for the local population. But obviously what's going on is that this person is really a puppet. So the Roman hand is up the glove doing this. Um, and what that means is that because they owe all their uh, power and their position to Rome, uh, Rome is what you see coming out of the mouth. They did exactly what the emperor wanted. Now in Judea, that first started with a guy called Herod the Great. He was the first puppet king of Judea. Uh, he came to power in about 40 B.C., Um, And he died about four years before Jesus was born. And Herod the Great was really a pretty remarkable man. He stands out in history as being a great ruler, I suppose, from a secular perspective. Uh, He built up, rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. He built the temple, which Jesus was familiar with. And Herod the Great was also responsible for building this city of Caesarea, which we've got on our map here. And he did it for an interesting reason. I mean, you can see from the name, Caesarea means kind of in honor of Caesar Augustus, the guy who put Herod on the throne. So it was a nice little nod to his patron. But also, uh, Herod had ambitions. He wanted to turn Judea into a trading nation. And the problem for them, along that whole coastline, they didn't have a single deep water port. 
So what Herod did is this. He built this amazing deep water harbor straight out into the ocean. And um, still no one's really got any idea how it was achieved. Uh, that, that kind of mole that comes out from the land is 70 meters wide. Uh, so it gives you an idea of how big that thing is. Maybe half a mile it stands out into the ocean. Uh, and then they dredged out uh, the basin in the middle so that they could bring in these big Roman boats. Uh, and even now, this is what it looks like. Um, still incredible that those, uh, the works that they did are still visible. So that's the kind of guy Herod the Great was. And you can see in the background there, oh, whoops, some of you could, some of the ruins of the city of Caesarea. That's it, thanks, Ronnie. So fast forward in time now to our passage, and we still have pretty much the same setup. We have a Roman governor and uh, a puppet, Judean king, based in Caesarea. But now it's Herod the Great's great-grandson who's on the throne. And he's called Herod Agrippa II. And Herod Agrippa II only appears in this little incident in the book of Acts. That's his only a place where he comes onto the stage of the Bible. So you need to not confuse him with some of the other Herods who are knocking around. We have uh, the Herod who massacred all the, the children in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. That's a distant second cousin of this guy. Uh, the Herod who imprisoned and executed John the Baptist. They all do bad things, don't they, these Herods? Dear me. Um, anyway, he's another distant second cousin. Uh, the Herod who uh, attempted to execute Peter in Acts 12. That's Herod Agrippa II's dad. But Herod Agrippa II himself, this is the only thing that he's famous for, um, being the guy who put Paul on trial in Caesarea. Uh, what we find also uh, is that just like it was in Herod the Great's day, uh, the Roman governor and the Judean king are really tight. Um, they're kind of forced together, aren't they? The king owes his power to the Romans. They live in the same place, so they're forced into a close relationship. You see that in chapter 24, verse 24 find out that Felix, who's the governor, is married to this lady, Drusilla. Well, Drusilla is Herod Agrippa II's sister. So that's a nice little nepotistic connection there. And then in chapter 23, verse 35, we found that when Paul first arrived in Caesarea, he wanted to just hold off trying him for five days until the Jews arrived. And so he locks him up in Herod's own private dungeon in Herod's palace, which is nice, isn't it? A nice little kind of addition to the real estate details for any property, four bedrooms, double garage, pool, private dungeon. I think that really makes it. <laughs> so anyway, that's Herod. But we also need to know just a little bit about Felix in order to make sense of what's going on here. You see, being the Roman governor of Judea wasn't exactly the best gig in the Roman diplomatic service. Um, you know, Judea was a backwater. It wasn't like being Roman ambassador to Ephesus or something like that. That was what you really wanted to be. Um, so it's the kind of job that maybe someone would get if they were on their way up through the ranks, you know, climbing the greasy pole, wanting to get to that uh, kind of uh, more prestigious post. But also, this is the kind of role uh, that was very, um, you see, kind of get an insight into the way that Rome worked here. It was a corrupt state. And roles like this, these midweight uh, kind of posi positions of privilege were handed out to people as a way to kind of keep them sweet. And that's what we find with the first guy who comes onto the stage here, Felix. His successor, Festus, is different. Festus is a career diplomat. But Felix is a guy who gets this job not because he knows anything about governing at all, but just he's a friend of a friend of the emperor. He gets past this position. And it's typically the case, I guess, in history that when people are given roles as the fruit of some kind of corrupt process, often they tend to be pretty corrupt themselves. And that's what Felix himself was like. He was brutal. We get a good insight into that. There's a story in the, the Jewish historian Josephus that comes from a couple of years before this, uh, where Felix found himself facing a revolt in Judea. It was led by an Egyptian guy who claimed that he was the Messiah. Popular thing to claim in the aftermath of Jesus coming along. Jesus really kind of made a big impression, so lots of other people tried to make the same impression. Hey, I'm the Messiah. Well, anyway, Felix came along. He rounded up every single man and woman who was involved in this thing and killed them on the spot. End of story. So that's the kind of person that Paul was up against here. He was really dangerous. In this passage that we just read, what we get is the court transcript of what happened when Felix and Festus met. And the first thing that we find out in it is that these Jewish leaders who we know have trekked up from Jerusalem to meet Paul, 
uh, they have got a new strategy. You might remember in Jerusalem, the whole thing had been a bit chaotic when we were doing this with Matthew last time. You know, it all descends basically into a lynching, doesn't it? Uh, he comes into the temple. The crowds start getting really restive. Uh, the Romans have to intervene. At one point in the text, it said, because they were frightened that they would actually tear Paul to pieces. So that's the kind of level of violence that was being applied. And I think that's telling, isn't it? You know, these Jewish leaders were supposed to be the people who were modeling God's character to the people. But look at the way that they carried on. It's just grotesque. Um, it doesn't seem that there's any indication in the text that they kind of looked at themselves and said, hold on a minute, we're behaving like animals here. Surely there's something wrong. But surely there was something wrong, given the way that they behaved. But anyway, we see that they, they've got at least a good sense to realize that approach is not going to work now that they're kind of going up to HQ, going up to Caesarea. So when they arrive there, lo and behold, we find they've hired a legal team. They have this guy, Tertullus. And um, it's amazing how much the charges against Paul have changed now that a lawyer's got hold of them. Um, (laughs) Yeah, back in Jerusalem, it was all shouting death threats. And underneath that, it was all issues around the Jewish law. You know, Paul, you're uh, undermining our faith. And we don't like you because of that. And we want to kill you. But now with a lawyer's help, they've managed to finesse all of that to be a set of charges which are designed to really make sense to this political audience up in Caesarea. So they've got a three-point charge sheet. It's all very organized. Uh, In 24 verse 5, we see the first one of the charges. Paul is a troublemaker. He's a riot starter. This one's designed for Felix, isn't it? Felix is in charge of keeping the Pax Romana, making sure that all of these little provinces stay peaceful. It's, an, it's a shoe-in conviction if he can be proved to be a riot starter. Charge number two, also in verse five, Paul is leading a dangerous sect. And that one's for Felix as well, isn't it? You know, Felix has got history with dangerous sects. The Jews would like nothing better than for, uh, for Felix just to decide to treat Paul and the whole of Christianity the way that he treated the Egyptian guy. And then the third charge is in verse six, uh, that Paul desecrated the temple. And this one's just something for Herod to keep him interested because great-granddaddy, Herod the Great, built that temple. He doesn't want to hear that someone's coming in and desecrating it. So here we go, three charges that are designed specifically to appeal to the audience. And can you see in that just how kind of depressingly pragmatic these Jewish leaders really are? When it comes right down to it, they don't actually care too much what it is that they're going to use as a pretext to get Paul executed. They just want to get him executed. So for them, the end justifies the means. And we need to hang on to that fact. It's morally bankrupt, isn't it, when you see it in practice? But I think sometimes our hearts are drawn to that kind of logic. Anyway, the cool thing is in our text is that Paul isn't flat by any of this stuff. He's a pretty smart guy. And uh, he answers all three of those charges, just like he's done tons of really great preparation, has a legal team of his own. So is he a riot starter? His answer is yes. Yes, but... Yes, I could be accused of starting a riot if this trial were happening in Ephesus or in Thessalonica, some of the other places where riots started around me. But no, not in Jerusalem. No, in Jerusalem, he had gone out of his way to keep the peace. Number two, did he desecrate the temple? Nope. The Jewish leaders that Paul saw there uh, thought that he had uh, come in with a, a Gentile, that he'd brought one of his friends from Ephesus with him. It was a mistaken identity. There were no Gentiles with him at all. So Paul was in the clear on that one. And if he'd wanted to, he could have really embarrassed the Jews here because actually this is a null charge. In the Old Testament, one of the primary reasons why the temple existed was to draw the Gentiles to God. It was supposed to be a place where they could come and pray and learn and hear about all the good things God had done for them. That's 1 Kings 8. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't want to embarrass them. So the next charge, the third and final one is, is he the leader of a dangerous sect? And Paul says no. Not if you define a sect as a religious splinter group that's broken away from the main core. Because Paul thinks he can prove that Christianity is the core. In verse 14, he says, I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. And if you just follow that on, he says, I believe everything that's in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God that these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So you can see that Paul thinks of himself as being in the main flow of this whole Christianity thing. And that just continues uh, in chapter 26, verse 6, when we see the third trial with Agrippa. 
Um, Paul there gets a lot more aggressive and he says, look, I'm in the Christianity is in the, in the direct bloodline of the Old Testament promises, the most kind of crucial, the crown jewels of Judaism, the promises to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. Paul says that they just run straight through Jesus Christ into Christianity. And that if you believe in some kind of Jesusless Judaism, uh, then you're the sect. That's Paul's argument. He thinks the Jewish leaders are a sect. It's pretty bold, isn't it? So Paul has got answers for all of these charges. And we just need to register in passing that this is a really important fact for Luke to record. When we're reading these texts in the Bible, always the first question to ask ourselves is, hey, what did this mean to the original audience? You know, why is Luke even writing this stuff? And uh, what we know about the audience of Luke, uh, this, uh, his gospel and then the book of Acts, he wrote them both together to the same guy who was probably based in Rome, written about AD 70. So this whole thing that we're reading here was written and mailed uh, to the church in Rome uh, who were really familiar with Paul themselves. Uh, we'll find out as we go into the next message. Paul spent five years in the city of Rome and then he was executed and the church in Rome had seen all of that. And now they're living in this post-Paul's execution world where he's really thoroughly discredited. People think it's a really dumb idea to be following this guy who was executed as an enemy of the state. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You know, if we were in a church like that and one of our leaders had been hauled down to the local jail and we were still kind of, you know, devoting ourselves to the things that they'd said, people would look at us and say, you're nuts. You know, that guy's been proven to be dangerous are proven to be a destructive influence. What are you doing exposing your kids to this stuff? So that's where this church in Rome was. And what Luke is trying to do now is he's trying to show these Roman believers who are under a lot of pressure to leave Paul behind, who have got easier, less controversial versions of Christianity that they can turn to, to stay with it, to stay with Paul and with his gospel. Because he's trying to show that whenever Paul was tried, whenever it came to the test, Paul was found to have right on his side. So whether the objections came from friends or from the religious establishment or even from the government, we see in these trials that Paul and the apostles had the answers. And I think Luke would want us to hear that too. You know, in our own culture at the moment, there's a bit of a movement towards a kind of form of Christianity, which is like really cool with Jesus. We like Jesus, don't really like Paul and the apostles. Um, I think actually that form of Christianity really badly misunderstands Jesus. Uh, But also in this passage, we can see it's just... It doesn't make any sense. It's not biblical. These texts are here to show us that at every opportunity, when Paul had to defend the gospel, he had uh, a defense that rang true. Luke wants us to be confident that the teaching of the apostles that we're reading in these New Testament letters is rock solid. Every time this thing came up for a trial in front of official judges, we find that Paul and the apostles had nothing to be ashamed of. uh, And neither do we. It's important that we just hold on to that confidence. So that's kind of our historical overview. That lays the table. And now we're going to get a chance to do something with it. You see, there's more for us in these trial narratives than just getting a grip on what was happening in the history. Um, We may not be in Paul's situation ourselves. We may not be facing actual trials or imprisonment. Um, But I think that... um, What we have here in Felix and in these other judges who are trying Paul um, is a really useful model for us because it shows us what worldliness looks like. We see natural, fallen, human self-centeredness brought into contact with the gospel and then reacting. And that's what we have happening inside our own hearts all the time, isn't it? You see, becoming a Christian doesn't remove all of that stuff from us. It doesn't even kind of fundamentally change it in essence. Our hearts still have those old inclinations. We still have the components of, a, of a, a Felix or a Festus or a Herod inside us. You see, what becoming a Christian does is not so much remove those things as it adds a new ingredients to that mix. If you picture your heart like a house, before conversion, I guess we're like a house which has a single owner occupier. Uh, that's our sinful nature. We're bound to it. We're enslaved. We can't stop pushing God out of the driving seat. We don't want to stop. We're determined that we know better than God does. And we stay determined no matter how many times we prove to ourselves that that's a house of cards. We just start kind of just reassembling those cards, building them up in some subtly different way because we're enslaved. Now what happens when God gets hold of us when we trust Jesus 
when we're born again is that that slavery is broken. It's ended. It dies. And the house of our hearts stops being a single owner-occupied property. It becomes a house share, if you will. Our old sinful nature is forced to live side by side with the very last person in the whole world that it wants to room with, the spirit of the living God. And the result is just this knock-down, drag-out fight. It's a room-by-room, corridor-by-corridor urban warfare. It's like the spirit parachutes in like SEAL Team 6, makes a base camp in the living room. Immediately, he's after the dining room. Like, I am going to be in there. Next, it's a full-scale assault on the stairway. And we have to decide, don't we? Are we with with these guys? Are we on the side of these, you know, the Holy Spirit motoring his way through our hearts or not? And sometimes we are and we make progress with him. Sometimes we turn around and we're against him. We start fighting back with our sinful nature, even though it's broken, even though we're no longer enslaved to it. We choose to, and we drive the spirit out of the stairway. And then that whole battle has to be fought again. And so that's what it feels like living the Christian life. There's a battle going on inside us, a contest for the ownership of our hearts. And if we're really Christians, the ultimate advantage now is with the spirit, right? We will never see the whole thing cleaned out in this life, but in heaven we will. The sinful nature will be finally defeated. Its slavery is already broken. We will see it completely defeated. But the point of this picture is just realizing that wherever we are in our Christian lives then, we still have sin at work inside us. And so we have a lot of benefit to gain from knowing our enemy. We have a lot uh, to gain from seeing how sin operates, what it is that motivates it, how it works. And so the great gift of a text like this in Acts is by throwing characters like Felix and Festus and Agrippa up onto the stage alongside Paul, we can see men who are driven by sin, who are enslaved to it, contrasted to someone who's really doing everything that they can to live by God's spirit. And so we get some rich insights into what's going on inside us. And that's the way that we're now going to march through these trials. So we'll go trial by trial, and we'll start just with the first one, which is the trial with Felix. We already know this one pretty well because we've read some of the, uh, the details. But let me just read on a little bit for you the subsequent verses, starting at verse 22. Then Felix, we're told, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he's just the Roman commander who was in charge of the barracks in Jerusalem. When he comes, I'll decide your case, says Felix. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked to him. So the first little extra piece of information we get here is that Felix was well acquainted with the way, which just means he was well acquainted with Christianity. By the time that this happened, Felix, we know, has been in Judea for five years. So he knows what's going on. He knows the basic details about Jesus' life and ministry. We know that in addition to Paul's defense that we read... We also heard here that he had a series of subsequent interviews with Paul where it sounds like they got right into the meat of the gospel together. Verse 25 tells us that Paul talked to him about righteousness. Well, any of us who've read Romans know where that's going. Paul's going to be laying out the fact that righteousness is something that all people lack, something that God only can give and that's provided for us in Christ. He put all of that right under Felix's nose. But look at Felix's response. It's kind of pathetic, isn't it? Verse 25 and 26, he says to Paul, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. And at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. And so he sent for him frequently and talked to him. And in that way, uh, verse 27 tells us that two years passed. Felix allowed that just to go on for all that time. Felix kept Paul waiting in Heron's dungeon with no prospect of release, the whole thing completely ambiguous, no schedule, no process, No way of knowing what might happen to him. Think of everything that Paul could have got done in that time. Think about the churches that he could have planted. Think about all the people that he could have reached. Think about the errors that he could have prevented. And all that time, Felix himself probably heard more of the gospel in his repeated interviews with Paul than almost any man who's ever lived. And yet it didn't change him an inch. He rejected the gospel 
and he prevented other people from hearing it too. And the reason for all of this was what? Simply he believed that he had a better plan for getting ahead. Felix thought that he knew what he needed just to achieve that extra little bit of satisfaction in life. For him, having a free mansion and a good income wasn't enough. He felt he just needed a little bit more money. So he kept Paul in prison simply because he thought that eventually he would break and pay him a nice fat bribe to get out. So I wonder how our hearts compare to that. You know, I don't think that probably any of us here are enslaved the way that that Felix was. But isn't there at least a room in the house of your heart where maybe sin has got the doors bolted shut saying, no entry, I have a plan to look after my own future, thank you very much. Rather than letting Jesus have the reins, we're kind of hunkered down in that little spot inside saying, I'm looking after myself, thank you. I'm controlling the risks myself. So maybe we have savings. Maybe we have property. Maybe we have talents that we're leaning on to kind of get us to the place that we feel we need to get to in life. And we feel that we have strategies to maximize those things ourselves and that these are places where Jesus has no business going. And so we modify down how much we're giving because we think, okay, well, giving that much away isn't really fitting with my plan of how to get ahead. Uh, Maybe we treat people who owe us money harshly. Uh, Maybe we are just stingy with our time. Uh, We don't let people have access to the things that we've got because we don't see how it's going to benefit us. But we need to listen to this. The story of Felix just graphically illustrates what that is doing to us spiritually if we really have that going on inside. Look what it did to his ability to hear the gospel. Felix sat under some of the finest and most persuasive teaching the world has ever seen. And he didn't move a muscle. Paul wrote the book of Romans 18 months before this. Paul wrote the book of Philippians about two years after this. Felix is right at the kind of collision of those two just incredible doses of download of wisdom from God. And yet he's completely unaffected. So maybe that's like us. Maybe that's a warning to us. But just look what happens when it's different. If Felix has that room in his life decisively closed, Paul has that room of his heart decisively open. And it's very striking, the contrast. Look at this situation from Paul's point of view. Just a few months before this, Paul was in Ephesus. And we know what was happening there. He was leading a mission movement that was impacting the whole of Asia. He was teaching in a lecture hall every day. He had trainees coming out of his ears. The needle was really moving. But now he's in prison. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's answered all the charges against him, but there's no possibility of release. He's at the mercy of a man who's totally unprincipled, who'd kill him as soon as look at him, who's totally indifferent to his frustration, who didn't care that what he was doing was important, had no... Don't you think Paul would be within his rights to be going absolutely crazy just to be tearing his hair out of this situation? Don't you think he might be within his rights just to take the situation into his own hands, pay that bribe, Because the end justifies the means. But look at his reaction. He won't do it. He just won't do it. Felix is the guy who trusts himself to control the future. But Paul is the guy who trusts Jesus to control the future. He says it himself in Philippians 4. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength, through Jesus. Jesus is owning that space in his heart. And look at the amazing freedom that it gives him. Do you sense that in those words from Philippians? Don't you want that? Paul's lost everything from a worldly perspective. But his response is just to turn around and use what's reaching out to Herod's household from his prison cell. And that's the reason of why all this is happening. So we have this amazing picture of Paul. But he's equally content either way. He's content with God's plan. He 
Thank you. 